So I kind of went on a journey to study how God created me, looking at my family history from my mom's side, who's Syrian, my dad's side, who's Lebanese, uh, then going through like a little understanding of my cultural background of being in that white world as an Arab and trying to navigate what are things that are that I've kind of gotten from school, things I've gotten from home, and then seeing how the Lord created me in that, I have found that I might have a relation uh, in a way that Paul has when he writes 1 Corinthians 9, where he becomes all things to all people so that he might save some. And as I've studied Paul's life, I've noticed that Paul never forsakes his identity as he becomes other things, as he becomes to the Jew as a Jew, but he is able to code switch. Like we have the great commission, we have the great commandment. I think 1 Corinthians 9 is the great code switch. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest, Chris Gubrel, is a campus team leader in Tucson, and he's also the West Coast cross-cultural training coordinator. Chris's story as a bicultural Arab American helped him develop the evangelism resource I am from Cultural Conversation Cards. Enjoy the show. Yeah, I'd love to start out. Just could you share with us a little bit about where you're from and how you got involved with Crew? Yeah, so I, uh, I was actually born in Iowa uh, and grew up in the Phoenix area. And I kind of started going to the U of A uh, my freshman year in 2007. Didn't know anything about campus ministries. Uh, was walking with Jesus, well, was saved, but not walking with Jesus, I should say. Uh, didn't really know how to do that. But I was in a night chemistry class that it was probably the biggest mistake of my life to have a chemistry class at 7 p.m. on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh, needless to say, I had to repeat that class because I didn't want to go to chemistry at 7 p.m. Uh, but in one of those uh, times I actually did attend, I heard music in the room next door to my classroom. So being a good, you know, studious freshman, I left class to investigate and it turns out it was crew. And so I started attending the weekly meetings and not going to class, which I don't always recommend, but it worked for me. Uh, yeah, I got connected through crew in that capacity. Uh, started getting discipled by one of the guys there. Uh, the staff guy was uh, giving me some clarity in the gospel. And I remember him going through the KGP with me. Uh, and it was just, it was really helpful development discipleship. That's how I got plugged in. Um, and now I know because I've read a little bit of things that you've posted, articles you've written, that you are bicultural, Lebanese, and that you are one of only a handful of, Le- do you, I'm sorry, do you identify as like Lebanese American or how do you say it? Yeah, I kind of go all over the place, depending on the situation circumstances, Middle mm-hmm. Eastern, Arab American, Lebanese, just depends on like what circumstance I'm in. Okay, so you are one of just a handful of crew staff who are Arab-American. Yeah, that I'm aware of at least. I know of like five or six other crew staff uh, that are Arab. And I try to meet as many as we can at like staff conferences. And last year I met one and then one person left staff. So (laughs) our numbers stayed neutral there. Uh, But yeah, just a small number of us. So I read your workplace post and then your article that I think you wrote on your blog about the title is Arab American Heritage Month 2020. And you talked about how April is Arab American Heritage Month and how it usually gets overlooked. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I can only speculate, but I, I, the reason why I think it's overlooked more in my context is 
like in Tucson where I serve at the University of Arizona, uh, the university celebrates Asian American Heritage Month in April as opposed to May because semester schools. And, and so that's how that kind of gets in my context overlooked. But I just don't think many people know about it. It didn't really become recognized until just a few decades ago. And there aren't that many people that are interacting with many Arab Americans. Uh, so it just kind of is a non sequitur for a lot of people. They don't think about it or experience it much. And something else you said in that um, blog post was you talked about your dilemma over deciding what to write in the article because it falls right down the middle of a collective conscience and or an individual perspective. Could you say more about that? Yeah, it was... I, I wrestled with a lot of emotions in writing that article. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to cover, knowing that not many people would want to engage with a lot of content. I didn't want to like write five different articles and then not have and just dilute the conversation. And so I had to pick what did I really want to hit on. And then as I was narrowing that down, I was like, I don't want to be speaking in a monolithic voice, saying like I have the Arab American voice, which I have a Arab or an I guess grammar and Arab-American voice, but not the. Uh, and so I kind of wrestled with, like, how do I re- represent myself well, but also speak into the fact that there are others that experience similarly, but not the exact same. So it was, it was difficult um, to kind of toe that line, especially knowing that, at least within our space within crew, there is a small number of us, and the few voices that would speak into it might actually be pretty similar or... St- incredibly different uh and since it's so wide range with only like five or six people i had to kind of toe that line pretty well i don't know if i did a good job at it but i did what i could uh navigating that uh, because i wanted my story to be what drove to the collective conscience and like here's my experience that might be others as well Um, but yeah it was uh it was hard. I, I, I labored over it a lot. And I had my wife, who graduated with a degree in journalism, read it like five different times. And it started off in a very different way. And as she like helped me find what I wanted to say and get different things and narrow it down, I got to what ended up being the post itself. Well, I learned a lot from it. Thanks for writing it. I mean, some of it was really eye-opening and hard to read, especially you talked about just your experience living in the United States after 9-11 and what you experienced from peers during that time who were just immediately fearful of anyone who looked a certain way. And uh, one of the quotes that struck me was you said that you find yourself looking for ways to truly be your bicultural self that God created you to be. And so I know that's come out of, you know, a lifetime of experiences like you experienced post 9-11. So can you tell us more about how you're finding ways to truly be your bicultural self that God created you to be? Yeah. um, Something that I am fond on like reflecting on is I think bicultural people are formed, not necessarily created. Like I I think we're formed into being bicultural uh, in the sense that like I grew up with uh, a very transitioning Arab to white household. As my parents immigrated to the States, they became more and more Western uh, in their culture. But as it was moving from very Arab to, to more and more Western, and then going into 
predominantly white schools and Western schools, my culture was formed into this uh, two worlds, being of two minds, as uh, other authors have put it. Uh, and as I've wrestled with that, I, I used to hate parts of me. Uh, and a lot of bicultural people will say and re- relate in this way, where I was like, I did not feel white enough to be in certain spaces or Arab enough to be in other spaces. Like when I'm around some of my Arab family that exclusively spoke Arabic, like I'm pretty good at Arabic, but I have a rough accent. And so I get made fun of in that. Uh, so I wasn't quite Arab enough. Uh, or I would call different foods, different things around my white friends and they'd make fun of me for that. So I'm not quite white enough. Uh, so I kind of was navigating those worlds and it led to a, a real misunderstanding of who I am. Uh, and I even experienced this to this day. Like, I'm not saying I figured out how to be bicultural, but I remember coming home one day after uh, coming from an epic Bible study, an Asian American Bible study, doing a Latino outreach with our Destino movement, and then doing something with our crew movement, a majority culture movement. I remember coming home, talking to my wife, saying, who am I? Like, I'm going through all these different spaces. I don't know even know who I am. How do I navigate this? And so I kind of did some studying. I was reading through Moses' story, understanding more of how his journey was kind of similar to my journey, how he he was formed into being bicultural. And if you read through like his story from Exodus 3 through on, like, you'll see how he starts becoming more and more identifying with his culture as he understands more of how God made him. Like you first go on and say, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And then as he is experiencing this, the tribulation, as he is experiencing the plagues with his people and identifying with the struggles, he starts going on and saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. Like he starts identifying with his culture more and more as he's experiencing it, as he's, um, living his life and walking, understanding more and more how God created him. So I kind of went on a journey to study how God created me, looking at my family history from my mom's side, who's Syrian, my dad's side, who's Lebanese, uh, then going through like a little understanding of my cultural background of being in that white world as an Arab and trying to navigate what are things that are, that I've kind of gotten from school, things I've gotten from home, and then seeing how the Lord created me in that, I have found that I might have a relation uh, in a way that Paul has when he writes 1 Corinthians 9, where he becomes all things to all people so that he might save some. And as I've studied Paul's life, I've noticed that Paul never forsakes his identity as he becomes other things, as he becomes to the Jew as a Jew, but he is able to code switch. Like we have the great commission, we have the great commandment. I think 1 Corinthians 9 is the great code switch. As he's <laughs> as he's talking through it all, he's saying like I'm able to switch in these uh, these languages, switch into these cultures, to then navigate for the sake of the gospel, so that he might share in its blessing. And I think that's a, a blessing that the Lord has given me as I've navigated my bicultural self. I get to to share in its blessing as I become all things to all people because I've experienced a bicultural life. That's fascinating. First Corinthians nine, the great code switch. Yeah. <laughs> Trademark Chris Gubrel. Did you come up with that on your own? I did. I was actually uh, taking my daughter out for a walk and reflecting on First Corinthians 9. And it came to me. So I may not be the That's... first person, but I came in on my own. <laughs> it's really, it's really powerful. And also, I never thought about how Moses is bicultural, but he totally is. He's like the Jew- Jewish Egyptian. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you dive into it, he's actually tricultural because he spent 40 years in Midian. He married into a Midianite family. He was a, a shepherd in Midian. 
with the Midianites. And so he had like all these things formed together. So I I actually truly think that when Moses asked God, who am I that I should go? He's really asking God, who am I? Are you sending me as a Hebrew? Are you sending me as a a prince of Egypt, as a a son of Pharaoh? Are you sending me as a Midian? Like, who are you sending? Because I don't know who I am. Like, I think that there's a, 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 an honest answer, an honest question there. And I really love how the Lord responds. He says, I will be with you. Like, he knows I created you. Your identity will come from me as I walk with you. And then you see him understand his identity as he engages with his journey. Wow. Powerful stuff. I love it. Chris, let's talk about this ministry resource that's been become available in the last couple years, or the last year, I should yeah. say, the I Am From Cultural Conversation cards. And I just, I know that you were really involved with the making of those cards, so I'm wondering how much of your own bicultural story informed the creation of that resource. Yeah, I... I'm biased. I love these cards. They're my baby. It's my dream. Uh, and it was it, it was kind of birthed out of seeing a hole in our evangelism. Uh, a while back, our organizationally crew decided, like, we want to double the number of ethnic minority students involved in our ministry. And there's a lot to say in that, and, uh, which I won't get into in this podcast here and now, but uh, I have other thoughts for that. But if we wanted to actually effectively do that, we would need to effectively change our ministry on the field. We're not going to be able to just do ministry as usual. And so we had to create a resource that helped us exclusively share the gospel cross-culturally. Like all our other tools can be stretched and done in a cross-cultural environment. Like I have used them. I've used the KGP hundreds of times to lead dozens of people to faith of different backgrounds through the KGP. Praise the Lord. But it wasn't designed to be shared cross-culturally. It was designed with a mindset that is Western. So because I noticed that hole, we wanted to create something to do that work for us, to help navigate that realm. Uh, and knowing how I kind of relate to the gospel in very different ways, like I, I believe and firmly believe I was saved and was walking with Jesus when the gospel was clearly presented to me in a guilt innocence presentation. Firmly believed it, loved it, but it wasn't until I engaged with the shame honor aspect of the gospel that I really understood more of my position in Christ, as I really understood more of that God does love me, that not only am I forgiven, but I have a seat at the heavenly table. Like that was so freeing for me, that no one is holding it against me anymore, that uh, God doesn't have like this thought in the back of his head. He's like, oh, well, there's, there's Chris who did X, Y, and Z thing. I forgive him for it, but we can't trust him anymore. Like there isn't that anymore, but there's, I have a place, I have a belonging and if I knew that, like, as it, I was a missionary, I was on staff with crew and that really clicked for me. And if it took that long for me to get that click, I'm sure a non-believer doesn't have that same connection. And so I wanted to create a resource that helped us as missionaries better understand a way to communicate the gospel that makes sense to someone else that doesn't look or think like us so that we can really meet their gospel need. And so as, as I navigated my own bicultural experience with the gospel, I was like, we're missing at least two-thirds of the population if we're just going with a guilt-innocence presentation exclusively. And so that kind of spoke into the framework of these cards. And you'll even see a couple cards as you go through it uh, that I was adamant on making sure that they were worded the way they were worded. Uh, 
because like there aren't many other uh, resources that re- represent Arabs very well or give opportunities for Arabs to be represented. And so there's like there's a card in there that talks about uh, how people from my background are usually portrayed poorly. And that is very true to me. Like if you look at the the world's largest grossing uh, cinematic universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is founded on Iron Man and Iron Man being attacked by Arab terrorists. Like the foundation of the most gross, uh, the highest grossing cinematic universe is founded on this trope that Arabs are evil <laughs> and that Arabs want the West killed and dead. Uh, it's still a great movie. I loved Iron Man. Don't get me wrong. But you still see that my people are portrayed exclusively as evil. You don't see Arab heroes. And so I wanted that to be represented. Like I wanted to be able to say, hey, people don't always represent you well. And, we, and I want you to be able to express that to a missionary so that the missionary can express it, represent you better and understand what you need better. Wow. We need an Arab superhero. There we isn't do. an Arab superhero, is there? Not that I'm aware of. In the Marvel of. Universe. No. Um, I have a story about the cultural conversation cards. Uh, we were, my comms team last year was at, uh, we were doing an offsite in Indianapolis. We were at a restaurant and we had the I am from cards and we wanted to familiarize ourselves with them as a tool. And then we also just wanted to get to know each other better because our team was forming. And so we got the cards out over breakfast and had such great conversations about, I mean, we're, and we're, we're all majority culture on that team, but still the cultural differences between us having been raised in different parts of the country by different people, there's a lot for anyone who's going through these cards. Um, and as we were using them, of course, our waitress kept coming over and she just wanted to know what we were doing. And, um, we kind of told her what they were, and then we ended up leaving the deck of cards with her because she was really interested. She was like, what do, what do you mean, your cultural you know, journey? A lot of us don't even know what that means until someone explains that to us, or we don't consider our culture, probably especially if we're a majority culture. And so uh, I loved how engaging it was just for this, you know, who, who isn't interested in a card game when they see it? It's not not that it's a game, but it looks like a game. Yeah. And uh, I love just being able to leave it with her so that she could explore it and use it with the people around her. So I think it's very transferable. That's super encouraging to hear. I love that. That so a waitress just discovered this and got to engage with it as well. That's super cool. Tell us some other stories you've heard about people using the I am from cards. Uh, I can tell you stories of dozens of stories of myself. Uh, uh, one of my personal favorite, as I used it in evangelism in my scope, uh, I came across a, a student who is of native descent, an adherent to Islam, but was really wrestling with his spiritual beliefs. And you can kind of see like the synchronism between his like his native spiritualism and his Islamic beliefs kind of overlapping. And as I was going through the cards with him, I really discovered what he ultimately was looking for in the spiritual realm was some sort of power, some sort of control over his life. And I got to affirm him in that. As we went through this, I got to affirm him saying, you know, it's not a bad desire to want control. And he has been told, like, 
he's a control freak and he has to let go of those things. And I had to affirm, like, no, God created us to actually have dominion over creation. So instead of like walking him through uh, Romans 3 and saying you're sinful, he would have agreed with that with his Islamic belief. Like that would not have been transformative to him. But what was transformative for him is like, I shared the gospel through Genesis 1. I was like, no, no, you were created to have dominion over creation and to, to co-manage creation with your creator. And that was intended. But the sin that entered this world separated us and we now had to fight for power with us and then other spiritual things. That's where the power struggle becomes. And then I, then I went to Genesis, or, uh, Galatians 6 instead of Romans 3, Galatians 6 of like, there's a spiritual battle for the power and there's the enemy that's wanting power over creation, but God gave us that power when he gave us his image. And it was so transformative for him to hear that God wants him to have power and to give him power over creation. Um, now, he didn't receive Christ in that moment, but that was the first time he got to engage with a God who was engaged with him in the way that he created him to be. I affirmed his desires and his, his need and shared the gospel that made more sense to him. And that was good news to him that he could hear like, oh, God wants me to engage with this. Uh, there's another story of a, of a staff person in California who used this card and used the beta version. It was like not a pretty version at all. She just went to Kinko's. It was white uh, cards on, with black text. And she was trying it out. There's grammar errors all over it. But as she's going along with it, uh, she engages with a student who's an Asian American student. And, the, and by her uh, admission, she was a witch, a practicing uh, practitioner of Wicca. And as they're going through these cards, the student tells her, she goes, no one has ever cared to ask me these questions about myself. No one wants to know why this or that or how I experienced the world this way. And over the course of the, the conversation, the student prays to receive Christ by feeling known by a missionary and then gets plugged into the crew movement and starts pursuing holiness and walking with Jesus. Uh, and that's someone that we would have missed if we would have just gone through like, you're sinful, but Jesus loves you. Like you would have missed that person, but now she felt known by the missionary. Um, yeah. And that's really the heart behind it. Like the whole point of these cards is that the unbeliever, the image bearer of God who doesn't know Jesus feels known by a missionary, by a missional image bearer of God so that the missionary can communicate the gospel in a way that makes sense to them. So these cards in and of themselves, they don't share the gospel. Like there's no like, okay, and now I need to repent side, but they simply equip us to better know what the person needs the gospel. So one thing that you, I feel like keeps coming up in this conversation and actually in many of these episodes that I record is the idea of different lenses that we look at the gospel through. Um, and I think the three, at least there's a book called the 3d gospel that talks mm -hmm. about how in the world, there's generally three lenses with which people actually view everything. They're guilt, innocence, mm -hmm. shame, honor, and fear power. So can you talk about that idea and maybe that book, the 3d gospel and how it's informed this tool or other parts of your ministry? Yeah. Uh, the, I love the 3d gospel. It was super informative in my, uh, in my journey with my understanding of my ethnic identity, highly recommend it to everyone. Um, but it, it was, it was through that book actually that the shame honor di uh, dynamic that I mentioned earlier was really transformative. It was, I was reading that book and I remember the author like walking through Ephesians two, one through 10 and I've read that passage a thousand and a half times. And if you would have told me that reading it 
another time I would get something new out of it, I would have scoffed at you. But reading it through the lens that the author is presenting it fundamentally changed my life. And it was super cool to see my position, my status, as opposed to just is by grace we are saved through faith, which is true. Praise the Lord we are saved by grace through faith. But the really exciting news to me was a few, few verses above that, which was we have been seated in the heavenly places. And that, that framework of like the shame honor being restorative for myself is really important to understand as we engage that not everyone relates to the gospel the same way. And I firmly believe it is the missionary's job to understand all three frameworks so that we can be better equipped to communicate the gospel to anyone. Like it should, someone should not have to convert to our cultural framework in order to hear the gospel in a way that we're comfortable presenting it. I think we should understand and, and do the great code switch and understand what they need from the gospel so we can communicate the gospel to them. But remove all barriers so that the only offense is the cross. There isn't any offense of culture, but it's just the offense of the cross that uh, could be the only stumbling block. Uh, so yeah, understanding those three dynamics is critical uh, in the work of being a missionary. You know, the 3D gospel, I think the way that it has affected me is it helped me understand the Bible better because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of stories in the Bible that it's hard to fully understand unless you understand shame honor as mm-hmm. a cultural reality in the world. And, you know, I think of like, uh, I think it's the prodigal son that it really helped me see what is going on in this story. It's that the culture in that story is so much different from my own. But once I had a framework of shame honor to look at that story through, I thought, oh, so it, like you said, it, it just enriched my understanding. And it happens to be that a lot of the stories in the Bible are told from a shame honor culture to a shame honor culture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Like even just think of one of the more famous stories in the Bible, the Old Testament, like David and Bathsheba. Like, as you read that, there's clearly sin that we all have taught and understood that. But David then like covers it up and is fully within his rights as king. So he felt no guilt in that. He's within his rights as king to then accomplish the, the things that he did, to send off this uh, mercenary and then to marry his wife. It wasn't until the prophet came and shamed him uh, that he led to repentance. It wasn't until he got, he exposed his, his past value of true honor when he was a shepherd boy that uh, that justice that came out from him from when he experienced uh, injustices in the past that then the prophet says, this is you and shamed him with it that led him to repentance. But so often mm-hmm. it's taught like, oh, he was guilty and agonizing over it. He, he was within his rights. He had no guilt. It wasn't until shame hit him that he repented and we get Psalm 51. And then we get su- subsequently Solomon but then subsequently gets us Jesus. Like we get all of that because it took a prophet to shame someone into repentance. Now I'm not going out there advocating, go and shame everyone into repentance, but it took that shame experience to get ultimately the Messiah's lineage. I see. That's so interesting. So I love this conversation. And of course we're having a lot of these conversations within crew about cultural journey. You know, when I searched online, doing some research for this episode, I think I just typed in crew cultural journey or something like that. And all kinds of resources came up. There were 
articles. This is all on crew.org. Listeners, it's all there. There's articles under life and relationships. Um, there's articles under train and grow. There's well, oneness and diversity. There's um, reflecting Jesus for the good of the city. There's Anyway, there's on and on. This is like a huge part of, of what we're doing, all under the our priorities of evangelism and diversity. I mean, this this all flows under those those priorities. And it help us understand why. Why is this such a big um, significant conversation right now in an organization that's really about evangelism? Yeah, great question. I firmly believe that everything in the Bible is true. And because I believe everything in the Bible is true, I believe understanding our cultural background is critical for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And if it wasn't true, if the Bible had any sort of error, which I don't believe it does, if it had any error, then we could throw out the Great Code Switch. We could throw out 1 Corinthians 9 and not have to do that. But because the Great Commission is, is true, and because 1 Corinthians 9 is true, the fulfillment of the Great Commission can only really happen through the prospect of 1 Corinthians 9. Like, I like to think of the what is Matthew 28, the how is 1 Corinthians 9. And so we go about doing 28, Matthew 28 through becoming all things to all people. Now, how do we become all things to all people without first knowing ourselves? knowing what we need to become and what, we, what needs to fundamentally be switched out. You're not going to be able to, let, let's just use myself for example. I, if I didn't know and understand my Arab tendencies of indirect speak, there's no way that I'm going to be able to intentionally speak directly to share the gospel with someone who's white, who is a direct speaker. I, I may just completely miss them and they may think I'm being passive aggressive when I'm just really speaking indirectly. So if I didn't know that about myself, then we would have a lot of conflict but since I do know that I can't speak indirectly and prefer indirect speak, I would need to intentionally speak directly to someone who prefers that. Um, and if I don't have that, then I'm not really going to be helping be part of fulfilling the Great Commission. Small example of that. But if we need to understand ourselves in order to know what is the barrier that needs to be crossed to do that mission's work. I even think about all the ways that we go to the nations, like outside of COVID. We're not going places in COVID, but... As we go to every country in the world, like we, we taught, like, crew has a representation everywhere. Like, praise the Lord for that. But if we're not understanding the, the baggage that we carry, like, your, your own skin tone will carry, will re- reflect differently in different countries. And if you don't know that about yourself, you're going in blind. You're, and then you're going to be blindsided by whatever consequences or benefits come from that. And so we need to understand our background in order to know where we're going forward. And I was actually speaking about this with a ministry partner recently, and he he grew up in a, in a church tradition. He, he's white, and his church tradition talks about like setting up your family forward, so that when they look back towards you, you, you have set them up well to have you know that a wise man leaves his kids as kids an in inheritance, like things of that nature from from Proverbs. But then I decided to say, well, let's look back and see what happened behind us, behind you, that led you to where you are. And he's like, oh, I've never considered looking backward. <laughs> understanding where I came from, understanding my, my background. I was only thinking about looking forward. And I think that that's fundamentally where the, the hair is split there. 
We love to look forward. We want to see the Great Commission fulfilled. We want Christ's return ASAP. Lord knows I want him to come back. This world is broken. But if we're going to be about the fulfillment of the Great Commission, we need to take a step back and look, where are we coming from? Where am I individually coming from? And where are we as a collective, even organization? Where's crew coming from? Knowing what baggage do we carry if we wear a crew polo on campus or something? What are we going to represent in that? So if we don't know that backdrop, we don't know what we need to cross to do that. And I mentioned Moses earlier, how he wasn't really, he, he started identifying more and more with, with the people of Israel as he experienced the plagues of them, as he experienced God's uh, presentation and the ups and downs of, okay, go, fine, I'll let you go. And then Pharaoh's saying, no, never mind, you're going to go and make bricks without any straw. Like, you're going to make it even harder for you. Like, he experienced those ups and downs, and you saw his identity formation happening through that. Uh, it was a long journey for him. And it ultimately led to him having some sin issues that led to him feeling arrogant and prideful, wanting to show off his power. And then that arrogance and pride prevented him from entering the kingdom, uh, into the, the promised land. But uh, it was his journey of understanding himself, which led to the fulfillment of the promise of the people of Israel having their promised land. And I think that's the same way for us. Is as we understand ourselves, it helps lead to the fulfillment of the promise of the Great Commission being fulfilled. And I believe that is a promise that will happen because we see in Revelation 7, every tribe, every tongue, every nation uh, will be in heaven. And then we see some of the beauty of, of Revelation. I'm, I'm currently studying Revelation right now. Um, as we're seeing some of that beauty, we see like the four creatures that represent all of creation. And we see how all of creation submits the glory of the Lamb. And that's the promise that will happen. And all of creation would mean all ethnic backgrounds, all, all people. Uh, and so I believe that promise to be fulfilled in the end, which means our role now is to, to work towards that promise um, by knowing ourselves to then better share the gospel cross-culturally. Mm-hmm.